your Bibles and open them up to Exodus 32. That's where we'll be under this heading of an idle factory. That's not an original phrase. Years and years ago, John Calvin penned that phrase to describe the human heart, an idle factory. Have you ever asked yourself a question like, how in this world could people miss the Lord? Now, for Christians that have been saved for many years, I've heard statements like that made. We, we say things like, um, we see the handiwork of God on a beautiful morning, or we hear the beauty of creation and the sounds around us, and we, we make statements like, how could anybody look at this mountain range and question whether or not there's a God? Or maybe you're a beach person, like so many in the building this morning. You're like, how could anybody stand right here and look at the vastness of this ocean and say, how could somebody doubt that there is a God? Maybe it's in a time of special comfort that you've experienced or you've seen others experience in a time of tragedy and woe. And you're wondering, wow, how could people not notice the Lord comforting this family or us during this time? We've known that. Many of us in this room as individual families and our Grace Covenant family has experienced that so much in recent years. On the flip side, we as Christians will struggle when we look at others to see why they're drawn to pagan gods or pagan practices like we'll look at that in this modern age and see what in the world is happening how could an adult a reasoning adult be drawn to whatever it is witchcraft or some weird pagan new age practice we see them in the moment and we're trying to figure it out we don't necessarily see the path that led them to the moment we see the woman arrested for high crimes and we see the, the man arrested at, for embezzling, thinking that everything was going along perfect until that one moment. We see the people of Israel here partying and worshiping around a golden calf, trying to be like the pagan nations around them and we go, wow, how could that switch flip so quickly how did we get here how did we reason and justify and then plan and build and decide to worship a golden calf it's called idolatry the bible actually it speaks of idolatry it's one of the most discussed problems in the bible as a local church committed to proclaiming the word of God, we have got to be on guard, watch this, for the detection and the destruction of idols in our own lives and in the life of our church. A.W. Pink describes idols and idolatry, or idols rather, as this, anything which displeases God, or displaces God rather, in my heart. Anything which displaces God in my heart. It may be something which is quite harmless in itself, but... If it absorbs me, if it consumes me, if I've got to give it first place in my affections and thoughts, it becomes an idol. Idols are counterfeit gods. Anything you seek to give you, what only Christ can give you, is an idol. What do I mean? 
the things that you put all your stock in to give you joy and security and peace and meaning and significance and identity and salvation. If it's not God, it's an idol. We may not believe that idolatry is a problem today because we haven't seen many golden calves around on the way to church this morning. Hashtag unholy cow? No? Doesn't work. Okay. Somebody got it. Nevertheless, our hearts can easily become idol factories, but they don't just appear out of nowhere. This morning, we're going to take a quick journey down the path to idolatry. Let me give you the outline of chapter 32 as it plays itself out. We're going to see this pathway to idolatry. We're going to see the possibility of mercy when God begins to speak to Moses before he even gets down the mountain. And then we're going to see the, the consequence or the problem of sin and what it, what it causes. And then we'll look at the hope we have in Christ today, okay? The pathway toward idolatry. These things didn't just appear out of nowhere. Uh, let's, with your Bibles open there, look at verse 1. And here's the first thing you want to notice, that the, they disobeyed. I mean, the first pathway toward idolatry is disobedience. They said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. Do you remember the commandments that we covered? Just like, it feels like a minute ago. For some of you, it may feel longer. Please don't weigh too heavily on that. We're wrapping up Exodus. But we just covered this. What's the first commandment? This is recall and response. First commandment. Right, no other gods before me. Uh, there's another one shortly after that. It has something to do about idols or graven images. What, what's that one? No idols? or Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they've like blown two right off the cusp here. Moses delayed coming down. I'll touch that in a moment. But disobedience, listen, when you are comfortable disobeying God, you are on the pathway to idolatry. When your knee jerk is disobedience and there's no check, you're headed down a path that's more than just an uh-oh moment or I missed the mark moment. Disobedience was the first step on the path to idolatry. They didn't trust the Lord. They had distrust for God. How do you get that, Pastor? Well, look at verse 2. You, you see that, Mo, or actually it's at the end of verse 1, Moses delayed. The people saw that Moses delayed to come down the mountain. He took too long. They had in their mind a reasonable amount of time, even though God did not say he's going to be with me this long. We know in hindsight that he was there 40 days. But Moses said, I'm going up to meet with God. And they're like, okay, good. That should take, um, I don't know, a handful of days. And when he took longer than they thought, they were triggered into taking matters into their own hands. What's your trigger this morning? What, what are you, like, you're waiting on God for something, but you're like, if he doesn't do this by this point, or if this goes this way or that way, or if she says that one more time, or if he does, th- I'm going to, you're going to what? Head down a pathway away from God? They disobeyed. They didn't trust the Lord. In verse 2, you see they discard God's grace. They took the gold that God had given them as spoil from the Egyptians It was a picture of God's grace and his goodness. They took that gold and they crafted it into something they could sacrifice to a pagan god. You remember from your reading last week, wink, 
because you all read the sermon text. Okay. You remember from your reading last week, last Sunday, that gold was reserved for the elements inside the holiest place of the tabernacle. So they took this holiest thing, this most pure thing they had, and they sacrificed it to a pagan god. That is making a mockery of God's grace. Number four, they didn't use their gifts for God. In verses three and four, you see the skilled craftsmen crafting this golden calf. God's plan was for them to use their skill for his glory. Their plan was to use their skill for their gain to serve another God. Don't just think about the gold it took to do this, but the skill and the time that it took to fashion this gold into this idol. Instead of using that skill and this time and the gold even to honor God, they headed down the pathway of idolatry. The next thing they did was distorted worship. Verses five and six. Now listen, they had some of the elements. They had some things that looked like orthodox worship. They had an altar. They had a sacrifice. They had feasts. They had proclamation. They had fellowship. They had singing. But they didn't have true worship. In the New Testament, Paul would write to Timothy, there's this thing of having an appearance of godliness but denying the power of God. They were playing worship. They did what was popular in the moment with the other nations instead of doing what was right with regard to worship. And Aaron, their, quote, leader, listened to them, perhaps out of fear or a desire to be accepted. He displayed terrible spiritual leadership. I'm trying to put off the application until later in the message, but I need to say it here. There's a whole church culture that reflects this part of the story and bogged down in trying to decide what culture wants and what culture needs and what culture sets the stage for and what culture wants to have in a worship experience and then customizing and reframing worship into something it wasn't meant to be. We want to do away with what Scripture says about worship and do it our way. As a result, we've created consumers in churches that are led by Aaron-like individuals who will pander to the people. But God's way of worship always puts the gospel on display. God's way of worship is always centered on God and gospel-saturated. Worship, it shows sinners even how they can be forgiven and worship the Holy One. That's what the tabernacle was meant to do. And the first shot the people had, they turned it into something else. Majority rule is not always the best method to make decisions. Lastly and finally on this path to idolatry, they exchanged the glory of God for something lesser. Take your Bibles and look with me at verses 7 and 8. We read 7 where Moses says, Go down, your people have brought, uh, the people that I brought out of the land of Egypt, you brought them up. They've corrupted themselves. They've made for themselves something. They've worshipped and sacrificed and said, These are our gods. The calf, this young bull, the bull was a favorite of the fertility cults around them. They looked at what everybody else was doing and said, let's do that without considering the implication. We need to be careful as churches. What we invite into a service and call it elements 
of worship. Okay, up to this point in Exodus, now get this, Israel has had multiple failures, right? They've grumbled, they've quarreled, they've tested the Lord, they've even refused to keep his commandments. But up to this point, they have not yet rebelled in such a way that they have crossed the line and drew God's wrath until now. The shock and awe factor is so high here because, listen, they publicly and vocally heard God's voice and twice, that's two times, for those of you keeping count, that's twice, pledged themselves publicly to obey him. With all their talking of wanting to please the Lord and their promise of obedience, two times, publicly, when Moses took a little bit longer than they thought was reasonable, they broke many of the Ten Commandments and began to worship an idol. Listen, there was nothing wrong with the law. That wasn't the problem. Their hearts were the problem. There's nothing wrong with this book in 2021. Our hearts are the problem. Andrew Knowles colorfully writes, the Lord is seething with anger at this terrible betrayer. They crossed a line triggered by their own impatience. Look at the text. We've read 7 and 8. Now look at 9 and 10, what the Lord says in your Bibles there. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. If you write in your Bible, take that pen out right now. Pastor D, I'm working on that move. You'd, you'd pull it out, and then you'd click it. And then you do this. Take that pen out and write right now, let me alone. What's God saying that for? He seems to be dropping a major hint here. Basically, he's saying, if you will get out of the way, I will do this. It's a rhetorical tool God is using here. When he says, let me alone, that my wrath, he's inviting Moses, the mediator, to get involved. It's a tool that many parents have used in the room. Well, probably you strong, spiritual, godly parents don't use, but let me tell you how this rolls at the Miller house with this parent, right? The toys are out or the stuff is out on the floor and it could play out something like this. No, 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 I'll get it up. Let me go get the trash can, <laughs> right? Something like that. Am I really going to throw the to toys away? Don't ask me that. Please don't ask my wife away. You see her, they're going, yes, he is, right? But what happens? The kids are like, Ugh! and they take care of it before we get to that point. God is saying, let me alone that my wrath, and, and, and Moses steps in. Every parent gets this tool that's used. It doesn't always work the way we want it to, and it, it's not necessarily the best parenting tool there. I'm not giving parenting advice this morning, just an illustration. God's doing the same thing with the prophet here. He's using the threat of judgment to rouse Moses to intercession and Moses steps up to the plate and as a result, here's your next point, we see the possibility of mercy. We see the possibility of mercy. In verses seven through 14, Moses steps up to the plate and he prays. Oh my, does he pray? We're gonna look at verses 11, 12, and 13 quickly this morning and just see what he's praying 
I'll get to the, that slide with a breakdown in a minute, Mark. Thanks so much. Moses appeals to God's promises, his name and his reputation. He argues that the Egyptians will say that God's rescued his people only to kill them in the desert. He reminds God of his promise to multiply the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at the text with me. Do you see it there in chapter 32? Look at verse 11. He implores the Lord, why does your wrath burn hot? Why did you bring them out? Do you see it? Why should the Egyptians say, oh, he brought them out to kill them? Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I'm going to multiply your offspring. Wow. Let me show you the three things that Moses uses to appeal and to intercede to God. It's very simple. Maybe make a note in the margin of your Bible if you want to or on the note sheet you got coming in. Here it is. You ready? He's appealing to God's mercy. He's appealing to God's power. God's just redeemed the people by great power and a mighty hand. He's appealing to his reputation among the nations. And he's appealing to God's faithfulness. All of this was to fulfill God's prior promise. How could the Lord do that if he destroyed Israel? Let me leave those on the screen for just a moment and ask you the question. I was stopped dead in my tracks after I wrote down these points, just making the nice little illustration. I'm sure this has happened to every Bible teacher in the room. You're preparing the lesson, asking the Lord to speak to you, and he speaks. And he says, when's the last time you've prayed for something so big you had to appeal to my power and my reputation and my faithfulness? You see, that's not, you don't need that if you're asking God for stuff or to feel better or to have a little extra money or to just have a nice comfortable life or a little more security. That's, you don't need to appeal at that level. No, no, this is intercession for the nations. This is what a Missions Monday looks like for us as a church when we hit our knees. This is what it looks like to pray for Jay. This is what it looks like to pray for Sam, for our missionary in Spain, for our missionaries in another sensitive part of the world, which I'll hold back from saying. This is how we pray. This is what it looks like for us to pray for South End. This is what it looks like for us to pray for our neighbors. For the glory of God. Oh God, you are an all-powerful God. You said you could save to the uttermost anyone who'd put their faith and trust in you. Lord, you said it's not your will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Lord, I want to see your name made great in our neighborhood. Lord, you're faithful. I'm asking you to use me to fulfill the Great Commission. The outcome, God's mercy was extended. Verse 14, the Bible says, and the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. Wow. The pathway to idolatry, the possibility of mercy, and now we've seen it realized. But there's still consequences to their actions. One songwriter said years ago, sin will take you farther than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. I see a lot of nods in the room. There's the product of their sin. Moses then gets the tribe around them long before, let me back up, long before Moses, remember most of this has happened while Moses is coming down the mountain. Before he even gets there, he hears the shouting and the singing and Joshua who's with him says, uh, there's a battle. 
Moses says, that's not a battle. I know what I'm hearing. That's a drunken celebration. Well, the preacher in me couldn't stay away from the D's here, so let me give you a few D's to write down. Moses knew the result of this idolatry and the product of his sin was debauchery. That's not a word we use a lot, but it's drunken revelry and just sin on full display and with no shame, debauchery. He knew something was up. He sees the calf and the dancing and he flares up with a righteous anger and then this very thing that they had crafted is destroyed. There's destruction as a result. Listen, sin always leaves destruction in his path, whether it's relationships or the very thing that you thought you'd put all your trust and hope in, this calf. Moses grinds down to dust. The tablets are destroyed. The calf is destroyed. The very world that they built for themselves comes crumbling down around them. He grinds the gold into a powder, just as a side note here, scatters it on the water and makes the people drink it. This is later linked to the punishment for adultery. So what's that got to do with anything, pastor? Listen, Israel was in a covenant with God and she had cheated on the Lord. What's the application? I hesitate to jump there, but I've got to say it here. Too often, I, me, your pastor, your brother, a member, not let me step away from the sacred desk for a moment and tell you I've struggled with this before, and probably you have too. As Christians, we like to deal with our idolatries by locking them in a closet somewhere, by putting them away instead of destroying them and taking them out with the trash. The lustful man goes back to look at the pornography again. The gossip starts telling rumors again. The greedy man cheats a little on another deal. The unhappy woman goes on another binge of food or alcohol or shopping or the man. Just like Moses never gave the Israelites a chance to go back to the golden calf, we, you and I, brother and sister, need to keep grinding those potential idols up until they are dust. And we can't go back to them. Starve that addiction. Get help and accountability. I'll help you. You can help me. We'll help each other. Detect and destroy the idols that would creep up. Deception. Sin brings about deception. Moses looks at Aaron and says, what happened? And Aaron says, uh, um, crazy thing. So your people told me to do something, and I just took the gold and dropped it in the fire, and bam, this calf came out. Isn't that unbelievable? Moses said, it is unbelievable. You rotten, no, it, it's a failure of leadership. You could preach this text on failures of leadership. it go all kind of ways, but here's the deal. Deception always follows sin. It's a result. This is a result of idolatry. Deception is a part of it. Uh, the calf made itself. Okay. Finally, death follows sin. Moses calls on his own tribe, the Levites, to arm themselves and to bring the people under control. And as a result, thousands die that day. Their faithfulness in this crisis, the Levites, will lead them to become the priestly tribe. Debauchery, destruction, deception, and death. What? Among the people of God. Because they chose to go down a path that God said, don't go. By the way, this is still the unintended consequences of sin and idolatry today. 
The Bible tells us in James 1, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Romans 6.23 tells us clearly that the wages of sin is, say it, church, death. So how do we put this practice, put this into practice today? How do we make this come alive for us? We'll get to the summary slide in just a few moments there, Mark. Thank you so much. In the New Testament, we read that these things, and, and in Corinthians, it's actually writing about this account in 1 Corinthians 10. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, that we should take heed lest we fall. So what's the instruction here for us today? If we take a step back from the images of the golden calf in this historic account, and if we looked at the Old Testament with New Testament glasses on, that's the way, by the way, we read the Old Testament well, is with New Testament eyes. Here's something that we see, something that comes to the surface. We see that there's a path for us to avoid too. And, And let's just look, I wanna look at two, and then you can take what I'm teaching you this morning and apply it to all those other things we started with, okay? But let's look at disobedience, shall we? Just just disobedience. You are on the path to idolatry when you are comfortable disobeying God's word. Now, I'm not talking about when you stumble, bumble, and fumble like that. We all make mistakes. That's not what I'm saying. We all miss it. It's possible to step into something and go, oh, man, and to repent, the Spirit convict you, and boom, you, you turn around and make it right to the best of your ability. There's forgiveness. Praise God. To those that confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Amen? But I'm talking about this habitual, premeditated choice that you make to consistently disobey God, and you're okay with it. You're headed down a pathway to idolatry. You need to know the Word of God You need a living relationship with the God of this word so that you can obey the Lord. Listen, disobedience is sin. Whoever knows to do a right thing and doesn't do it to him, it is sin. You are my friends, Jesus said, if you do what I command you. Oh, I thought this was all just a free-for-all. Well, salvation is free for all, but being a disciple will cost you everything. Self-denial is what you signed up for. You're on the path to idolatry when you are comfortable disobeying the Lord. That was that first one thing. And then distrust, like you don't trust the Lord. Another indication that you're on the pathway to idolatry is when you find it easier, watch this, especially in this age, when you find it easier to believe and trust in anything and everything but the Lord. Like you'll take a news report or something somebody says because they read it somewhere or what this person says about that before you'll take God's word as an authority. That's a problem. When you're easily blown about by every wind that stirs anything up, you are cranking up that idol factory in your heart. Listen to me. Even when you don't see God working, he's still working. When you don't sense his nearness, he is still near. When your prayers seem to hit the roof of the building and go nowhere, God still hears and answers because he's God. The earth is still his footstool. The heavens are still his throne. His name is still exalted. His way is still better. His word is still sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. Christ is still enough. Trust him first. Don't head down a pathway to destruction, okay? There's two examples. You can go back in the notes at the beginning, back into the text, and say, Lord, wow, 
I don't want to head down this path either. You can do it with anything. Are you beginning to presume upon the grace of God for your own pleasure? Does Christ and the church get the best of your gifts or what's left over? Do you keep your best for your own selfish game? Are you more passionate about your preferences in worship than you are about what God has clearly said is the most important? No wonder Calvin refers to these hearts as idol factories. Here's a great question for reflection. Who is your true Lord? Not your professed Lord, but the one who actually speaks with authority into your life. If the voice in your head says, do this, but the voice from Mount Sinai says, don't, who do you listen to? How do we stay on the right path? The Bible tells us in Galatians, we walk by the Spirit. You get in the Word of God so the Word can get into you. And you walk in step with the Spirit. The more we study Moses, the more we learn about Jesus. That's the way the Bible works. We see here the Bible, this text, as hard and as heavy as the idolatry thing has been this morning. When we read this, it doesn't lead me to despair. No, I begin to see the forgiveness that God only offers in a Savior. You see, they had the possibility of mercy, but we have the person of mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, there's a path to avoid, but church family, I'm so thankful this morning there is a person to embrace. Unlike Israel, we don't just have the possibility of mercy. We have the person of mercy, our merciful high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike Moses, who points us to Christ in this moment, but later would fail the Lord on multiple occasions. Jesus never fails. He's perfect. I use the phrase a lot around here. You've heard it twice this morning. Get in the Word so the Word can get into you. But it's not enough just to know what God says. Hear me, church. Israel knew the law. They had gotten it first, and they still disobeyed. The problem was they couldn't keep the law. You know what they needed? The gospel. <laughs> a Savior. They needed a Savior who could keep it and keep it for them. They needed Jesus, and so do we this morning. I opened with it as our reflection passage from 1 John 5, 20 and 21. We know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. He's the true and eternal life. We keep ourselves from idols. Jesus is an obedient Savior. He was obedient unto death. He's a trusting Savior. He trusted that at the right time, God would raise him from the dead. He's a submissive Savior. He knew that he would have to go to the cross, and he followed God's will, the Father's will, rather than the pressures around him, and he was a courageous Savior. He defied every temptation and endured the fatal suffering of the cross. This is our Jesus, our King, truly God and truly man, crucified, buried, and resurrected, able to save us to the uttermost, even from our own idols. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's the gift of God. Anyone who trusts in Jesus will be saved. And by his grace, we're able to avoid falling into sin. Not perfectly, of course, but we're still able. And by his grace, we're able to do what God says. 
And by his grace, we're able to trust that he knows what's best. And by his grace, we're able to do things his way rather than our way. And by his grace, we have the courage to do what is right. And by his grace, may we never forget that Jesus has done so much to save us, dying for our sins, rising from the dead, so that we can worship the true and living God and not settle for idols. Would you stand with me this morning as I come to the instruments? We're gonna sing and worship God, but I have one more charge and admonition for you. If you're here this morning, listen to me carefully. I say this with the authority, all that I can muster on behalf of the elders of Grace Covenant, more than that, on the authority of God's word, don't take another step on the path of destruction. I have to believe preaching a message like this with God in his sovereign hand that God has you in the building this morning and you, 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 brother, you, sister, you, friend, you watching online this morning, God is speaking to you. You're about to take another step on a path away from God. Don't do it. Don't do it. Watch this. This is what repentance looks like. Watch. I'm walking down this wrong pathway. I stop. I turn. And I trust Jesus. Are you trusting today? Let's pray. Father, I pray for that one who, and I don't use this phrase lightly because it's exactly the end of the means, is hell-bent on going their own way. Lord, I pray that you would arrest them in their tracks this morning and they would come to know the grace and forgiving power that only you can extend and recognize they cannot do this in and of themselves, but the fact that they are bothered right now is indication that you are giving them one more chance to get off that path. Save them today, God. If they don't know you as Savior, save them. Call them into the family. If it's a brother or sister heading down a path they shouldn't head down, stop them. Bring brothers or sisters around them to hold them accountable and help us this morning to detect and destroy by your grace the idols that would distract us from you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And the church said amen. Listen, we're just about to sing. We're going to sing songs together and worship the Lord. That's how we're going to respond. Some of you need to respond in prayer. I'll be right here. If you want to come down front, meet me and pray, that's fine. You want to pray with somebody next to you, grab somebody. Say, pray with me right now. I'd hate to leave the place this morning head and get back on that path when you had a chance to do business with God. Let's worship the Lord this morning and thank him for Jesus, who's our sufficient Savior.